Stroud watching for the end zone. Jump ball. Touchdown, Smith and Jigba. Are you kidding me? Fourth and five, the national championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. Before we begin today's episode, David and I would like to express and extend our thoughts and prayers to the Michigan State community and all those in East Lansing affected by the traumatic events of the night of February 13th. Hearts go out to the families of those involved, and we wish everyone quick recoveries, good health, and hope they receive the attention and access to resources they require during this time. Welcome to the 28th installment of the Saturday Cadence podcast. Our show is presented by the Silver Bulletin. I'm your host, Blake Biscardi, alongside Dave Wertheim. We've got a full slate for you guys today as we assume the role of NCAA commissioner and discuss how we'd change college football. We'll focus today's show on conference realignment and the new landscape of college football beginning in 2024 and how we'd make it better once again as we take the role of commissioner. So David, first up today, let's go with breaking news that Todd Munkin being named the Baltimore Ravens offensive coordinator just hours ago. Yeah, you know, it's not really a surprise. This has been in the works for a few weeks and Uh, finally came to fruition today. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Georgia's offense this last year built around the running game, built around tight ends. And that's something that Baltimore has done for so long, especially in recent years with Lamar Jackson and Mark Andrews running that strong running game led by J.K. Dobbins being their primary uh, weapons on offense. And so it seems like a seamless fit here. You know, Munkin just taking what he did at Georgia. He was so successful there for all those years and now heading up to Baltimore. And I'll try to do the same thing in the NFL. NFL experience there, obviously, was a coordinator with the Browns and Buccaneers before. And this will be a loss for Georgia. We'll talk a little bit about who they're bringing in instead and uh, should be uh, definitely an interesting change. Yeah, I think it's a great hire for the Ravens with uh, the personality that Munkin brings to an offense and how he's able to get a bunch of different looks and utilize all the different positions and weapons available to him, notably the tight ends that Georgia's used and focused on, like you said, with paired with the running game, exactly the blueprint the Ravens use. So I think it's going to be a home run hire there. Uh, J.K. Dobbins will be a great fit in his offense there. I saw earlier that Georgia's going to bring in Mike Bobo. They're just going to elevate him to replace him as the offensive coordinator. So time to study up on Mike Bobo for all you Georgia fans out there. It sounds like it's going to be something good and just – move the train right along. It's a plug and chug offense, like we've mentioned before. So I think George is going to be in good hands. However, losing a guy like Munkin, it's not going to stay at the same level. I think it's going to look a little bit different and there'll be some growing pains originally, but thankfully for Georgia fans, their schedule sets up pretty nicely for them next year. Yeah. And Bobo's an interesting hire. You know, he's a former Georgia quarterback, was an assistant coach there for so many years, was a coordinator there under Mark Richt uh, starting 2007-2014 and then recently came back as an analyst this year. So very familiar with Athens, of course, a Georgia native, familiar with the university and that program. So uh, I think, uh, you know, it's probably as good of a hire as they're going to get, especially this late in the cycle, getting a guy who's been a coordinator at three different SEC schools, Georgia, South Carolina, and Auburn, was a head coach at Colorado State for a little bit, and then, of course, a Georgia, a former Georgia player and, and an alumnus. So um, definitely probably the best hire they could make at this point in time. And, you know, we'll see how it works out, but you got to like it there. If you're Georgia to kind of finding a guy who already knows the system, this late in the process. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we'll see what he does in year one. He's going to have a lot of weapons to work with and some new faces. 
Uh, most notably at quarterback, that is going to be a, a battle. So we'll see who wins that job, but they're going to be able to throw the ball to Brock Bowers for sure. And he's going to be back and probably the focal point again of that offense for the third season in a row. And uh, again, we'll see what he does in year one. But by the time year two comes around, there's going to be some new opponents in the SEC for Georgia as Texas and Oklahoma make the transition. That news late last week was made official that the Sooners and Longhorns will join the Southeastern Conference immediately in 2024. So the SEC is going to expand. We'll get into Big Ten expansion here in a minute. But your immediate thoughts there on Texas and Oklahoma making the move a year early. I think it makes sense. There's really no point in dragging out the lame duck period for either side. I mean, you know they're going to leave. What's the point of having them stick around? It's kind of like senioritis, right? Like you you have to stay those last couple of weeks of the year just to get your credits or whatever, but no one really cares whether you do the work or not. And it seems like that's kind of what happened here. Everybody knew it was time to go and they decided, okay, we're we're going to skip the BS and you know, we're just going to we're going to end it a little early here, end of the year early. And I think it'll be good for both sides. Like I said, you don't really want to drag things out. And especially with newcomers coming into the Big 12 this year, like Cincinnati, you know, you don't really want that one year overlap where there's a bunch of lame duck teams. And I think it really makes sense here. And, and I think it'll work out better for both sides this way. I do, too. The only concern I would have not to repeat everything you said on the benefits side. But the concern I have is which school's ready for that SEC, that jump in competition there. The way, I mean, Oklahoma has been a great program historically under Bob Stoops and Lincoln Riley in this century. And uh, Brett Venables had some struggles last year going six and six. However, a little bit of a caveat to it. They were in that Nebraska category where they just couldn't find ways to win the one score games. So maybe that record looks a little bit different. So I wouldn't read too much into that six and six from a year ago, but there's certainly a competition jump that's going to be with, the SEC schedule uh, in comparison to the Big 12 stylistically. And we're really going to see what both programs made out of. And all the talk we hear is Texas back. It's a wonder every year. Well, Texas better hurry up or they're going to be a forever seven and five team until they get it figured out once they make the move over to the SEC here in a year. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Texas probably right now has the roster that's more built for the SEC as opposed to Oklahoma. They got a lot of SEC transfers on that team, guys who grew up in SEC country. And that's not to say that Oklahoma doesn't. I just think that Texas top to bottom has more of that SEC-esque roster. But you're right. You know, they, they got to figure it out quick. You know, the, these big 12 records that they've had on both sides, you know, Oklahoma, what, six and six last year, six and seven, whatever they were. You know, that number is probably a little bit worse if they play in the SEC. Same goes for Texas, although I know they held it close against Alabama and whatnot. But, you know, those games in the Big 12 that you might be able to win are games in the SEC that might go the other way. You look at a team like South Carolina, middle of the pack in the SEC, maybe even towards the bottom, they came out there and they beat Clemson, they beat Tennessee, and, you know, that's, a, that's an average SEC team. So, um, you know, don't let the bowl game records necessarily fool you. SEC certainly for real. We've seen it in national championship results for the last couple of decades now. And you're right. They got to hurry up and, and they got to figure this out quick or else, you know, they're going to be that seven and five middle of the pack team. Definitely. And then I think the opposite is true with USC and UCLA. Both of those schools appear ready to move into the big 10. Now the level of physicality that the big 10 is going to bring in comparison to the pack 12, that'll be the biggest adjustment there. But as those programs get into it, that toughness is instilled in those, in those players and both of those programs more so at UCLA than USC at the moment. But I think both of those schools are better suited to make the move than Texas or Oklahoma. I agree with you only because the Big Ten isn't as strong. 
Yes. Uh, it's the SEC top to bottom. I think we saw USC there in the Pac-12 championship game um, in the second half specifically really get out physical and out tough and manhandled by Utah. And that's something that'll happen every week in the Big Ten if you're not careful. I mean, we saw, you know, I know the weather was bad, but we saw a Northwestern team and, and a Maryland team really take it to Ohio State um, and give them really close calls here. We saw Illinois with that very strong defense almost pull off the upset against Michigan late in the season. So just like the SEC, any given Saturday, one of these teams can give you a good game. And uh, in the Big Ten, the, the upsets are usually happening when, you know, there's a inferior opponent that ends up playing more physically than a talented opponent. Um, and USC, specifically, really USC, has to be pretty careful in this situation. And Lincoln Riley has been known as more of a finesse coach. And, um, you know, he's going to have to really get his guys toughened up as they enter the Big Ten play because – when it gets to November and you're over there in Madison and you're playing in 30 degree weather, you know, those boys are coming out there and warm us with their shirts off and you got to be prepared to match that energy. So that'll be a really interesting thing to see once those two teams get in the big 10, especially late in the year. I love how you mentioned the November and the 30 degrees and that whole dynamic of the big 10 football. But before we even get to the 30 degrees part, just a word of caution to both USC and UCLA fans in the football programs. If you see a road game on your schedule and the opponent's wearing black uniforms, and it's going to be at night in either Purdue or Iowa. Be advised. <laughs> Watch out. That is, that is not a normal atmosphere at all, and it is a recipe for an upset. I don't care how good you think you are. Something possesses those teams in that atmosphere and environment and in those stadiums to where you don't play as well as you'd like to, and all of a sudden those two teams look like they could be top five teams for the entire year. They play with their hair on absolute fire. You better be prepared. You better. You don't want a whiteout game at Penn State on your schedule either. So, well, either, you know, a yeah. lot of scheduling, a lot of scheduling quirks in the Big Ten that could be pretty interesting. And you know, those two programs better hope that they get some of those November games at home. Um, you don't want to have to go on the road at that time of year in this conference. Whether you're going to Minnesota, Illinois, pretty much anywhere, really, you're going to be in some trouble. So, it'll be interesting to see. And and the Big Ten is probably the conference that has the most. Uh, disparity in terms of the weather and what i mean by that really is that you know you're, you're going to get something every single place that you play that's going to be uncomfortable yes whether it's the crowd like we've mentioned with these white out and blackout games whether it's the weather you know you're not going to show up it's not going to be a sunny beautiful day and you're playing at eight o'clock and this and that no it's going to be uncomfortable and those two teams better be prepared for that because it is not easy in the big town yeah it could rain sideways it could be windy and then there's going to be those weeks where you have a home game in 75 degrees and sun and you travel up to Minnesota and then all of a sudden your game is in 15 degrees and it's going to be snowing sideways or however you want to look at or you got to go to Madison and listen to jump around in the fourth quarter and you can't even hear yourself yeah. think nor feel any part of your extremities because of how cold it is in comparison. So yeah, scheduling quirks going to be a lot different. The Big Ten has the most range of all the conferences, like you said, with what it offers and uh Really looking forward to the matchups that both of these moves from the SEC and to the Big Ten will bring for both conferences there. Oh, yeah, I think it'll be good for both conferences in the end. And we're going to talk about it here in a little bit. But, you know, I think uh, I think this is just the first wave. I think we're going to see a lot more soon. Yeah. And now let's get into something here as the conferences expand. Are you more of a fan of going to a pod structure in these, you know, we'll call them quote unquote super conferences? keep the divisions and just have them be bigger or more of how the big 12 has it right now, where 
it's kind of a round robin and everyone plays everyone. Now I know you won't have that luxury in a conference with 16 teams, but more so you don't have any structure. It's just all the teams you play who's on your schedule. And then the top two go to the conference championship game. I don't know. I, I feel like the pod structure might eliminate some of the rivalries that we've known for, you know, hundreds of years. Obviously you'd have to keep Ohio state and Michigan together in that scenario. You'd like to keep Michigan and Michigan state together in that scenario. Where does Penn state fit in? I mean, you've got Iowa and Minnesota kind of got to stay together. You got Wisconsin in there too. Um, so I, I don't really know how they're going to do it. And I don't really know what I prefer. Um, I think I like the big 12 idea with the round robins and whatnot, but you know, you're probably only going to get what eight or nine conference games a year, even with the new structure, considering there's still right. going to be some out of conference games, at least in the foreseeable future. So, you know, I don't really know how you handle it here. Um, as long as they keep the rivalries and, you know, I know that's been a lot of talk lately. Oh, Ohio State, Michigan might move from that Saturday after Thanksgiving, or, you know, they've been saying on every different scenario that could possibly exist. And um, in my opinion, I think that those rivalries are pretty sacred. It's one of the things that makes college football what it is. And, you know, we've seen a, a big shift in the sport the last 10 years. And those rivalries are one of the only things that we have left that, you know, we saw when, when we were growing up really and grew up with the game there in the early 2000s. It's changed so much since then. And those rivalries are kind of sacred. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how they approach that here with all the realignment and expansion and everything. Yeah, I'm going to just, you know, expand on your last point there with the rivalries. And I think that has to be the main focus of the realignment structure that you have in these bigger conferences. And I think even moving forward as well in a conference like the Big 12 or the Pac-12 is, as college football continues to change because it's changed so much, we now have the NIL implemented there and the transfer portal and all this kind of stuff. We're expanding the playoff, which we'll get to in a minute. I think you kind of have to keep divisions or some kind of structure in there, or you just go to nothing. I think the pods would complicate things too much. So I'm more so a fan of having the divisions or just having nothing in all that way. You prioritize all the rivalries. Like you have to keep the historical rivalries together, Wisconsin, Minnesota. You got to keep it for Paul Bunyan's axe. You have to keep Ohio State, Michigan. You have to keep Auburn and Alabama and Florida, Georgia and Tennessee and Alabama, even though they're cross-division rivalries there. You've got to prioritize those games and have them be locked into the scheduling no matter what. And then you play the other games for the schedule on a rotational basis. So in Ohio State's case, you have a definite game every year against Michigan, a definite game every year against Penn State, and a definite game against Illinois, let's say, for the Illibuck trophy there. So those are your three main rivalry games you maintain, and then you rotate playing USC, UCLA, Nebraska, Rutgers, you know, Minnesota, Northwestern, all the rest of those schools you rotate playing five of the remaining however many 12 teams. And I think that's how you have to approach scheduling going forward. That way you maintain the integrity of the game. You keep the rivalries because that's what makes college football so great. What would a college football season be if you didn't have Ohio State, Michigan or Army, Navy or the Iron Bowl or Red River or USC and UCLA playing both teams in their home jerseys like that scene, the tradition of those games, the history of those games, the pageantry. You have to keep that because that's what makes college football great. And as we move into this realm of expansion here in 2024 with the conferences and the playoff, you have to build it from the ground up and the very foundational piece is those rivalry games. Yeah, I could, couldn't have said it better, really. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And you know, I just want to add, you, you can't really forget about those out-of-conference rivalry games either. You look at Florida, Florida State, South Carolina, Clemson. It's just 
a couple examples off the top of my head. And you got to wonder how those are going to be prioritized in the future as well, considering the historical significance. You know, even one that's, that hasn't really been competitive, like Georgia, Georgia Tech, still means a lot to a lot of people. Um, so you got to find a way to prioritize those two. And I'm sure the schedule makers will figure it out. I'm sure that the networks don't want to lose the ratings on games like Ohio State, Michigan. So I'm pretty confident that they'll figure it out for that reason only, really. It gives me some hope there. And uh, certainly it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, and guys, too, we're not alluding to Ohio State, Michigan, that game going away or the Iron Bowl going away. It's more so you have to be able to build this futuristic version of college football around those games. And David made a good point there with the out-of-conference rivalry games. You have to include those as well. And part of what we forget now in this modern era of college football is this sport began as a regional sport. So that's where a lot of those out-of-conference rivalries come from or just those geographical rivalries like Pitt and West Virginia. The backyard brawl it was gone for 10, 11 years, and it comes back this year. It was a fantastic game, and you could see the emotion and how much that meant to all the fans involved. And a lot of the players on both of those teams, they don't remember watching those games. You know, They weren't recruited to Pitt or West Virginia saying, oh, and we're going to get the opportunity to play in the backyard brawl. That wasn't a recruiting point, and it's gone away, and it's something that we want to bring back. Texas, Texas A&M, it's the same thing. College football was regional at first and then it expanded to this whole national scene and as we've you know expanded everything to more national and expanded more tv networks and gotten to the playoff system and conference realignment and all this kind of stuff we've really lost that foundational part of college football where it was protecting those regional rivalries and the geographical rivalries because that's what made college football great that's what makes it great all those games and that's something you have to 100 percent protect and build into this new system going forward, or else you're just going to get into a league that is the NFL's AAA. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I think there's going to be a mix of both. I think they are trying to make it like the NFL AAA. Um, and I think we're going to see in future years, maybe four mega conferences with however many teams they decide to put in them. And I think it will look very similar to um, an NFL triple A league. And then you'll have the rest of the group of five ending up in some sort of double A really. Um, and, and it'll look something like that. You know, we've, we've already kind of seen it start here with the NIL and whatnot, and certainly not necessarily a bad thing. We'll, we'll talk about later in this episode, how we would change it. And, um, but yeah, I think that triple A thing is going to happen. And I think that the, the, what they really have to balance is the line between being that developmental league and getting the players prepared while at the same time maintaining the traditions that have been around for a hundred years. So, um, yeah, I think, I think you kind of hit it right on there and, um, it'll be fun to follow and, and we'll see how the decision makers decide to approach it. Yeah. So let's move into the college football playoff expansion here. And that structure now is going from four teams to 12 effective 2024. So this will be the final season of the four team format. And now as commissioner, when you're looking at this from a 30,000 foot perspective and thinking of all the stakeholders and the people involved, you see one of those rules I want to look at right away is the inclusion of that group of five team, the highest ranked uh, power or group of five champion will be included in the playoff format. Well, what if it happens that one year that team has three losses or whatever the case may be, and they're ranked 22nd, and then you have a team that's going to be ranked 12th or 13th or 11th that's not included in the playoff because they have to default to this team that is nine and three and they're 10 and two. And you know, on paper that that power five team would beat the group of five team. So I think there needs to be this 
addendum in there saying that that group of five team has to be ranked inside the top, whether 12, 15, or 20. I think you go 20 because that's about the likely landing spot to where those teams have been if you just take the eight, nine years of sample data we've had. But I think that's something they need to include in there as well. And the same thing with the seeding to where this year, Clemson and Utah would have gotten the three and the four seed there instead of, you know, TCU or Ohio State, which their ceilings would have been five and six. Now, I think you have a two loss maximum for the top four seeds, despite if you win your conference, that way you kind of, you have to reward these teams, especially in the era of super conferences where you're going to be playing much more difficult schedules. You've got to be able to reward those teams. And if for some reason, Alabama schedules, well, they have to play Texas now on conference and then they beat Georgia and then they beat Auburn and LSU. And then they have Notre Dame out of conference. You reward that for having a good record against those kind of teams instead of saying, oh, well, you lost one game, you didn't win your conference, and now you have to be at five. It sounds good in theory, but I just don't think it's likely. I mean, look at the NFL, for example. All four NFC East teams finished with a better record than the NFC South champion, right? Tampa Bay finished eight and nine. The worst NFC East team were the commanders. They were eight, eight and one. Um, and, you know, it sounds good on paper and, uh, you know, it, it might be the right way to go. I certainly don't hate that. I just think it's unlikely based on what all the other sports do. Um, you know, we see it pretty much every sport. There's always a team with a worse record that gets in because of the division that they're in. And I think that will stay the same here. Um, I'm sure there will. The good news about this one is that there is some subjectivity to it um, in terms that, you know, it's not a computer ranking. There will still be a committee involved and whatnot. But um, I don't think that we're going to see a drastic shift where, okay, you know, we're throwing because in that case, why have divisions? Why not just make one super league round robin, whatever, and you can call it whatever you want uh, and have the best team, you know, make a a 15 team league or whatever, and then just play around Robin throughout the season and then cut that down to four. I mean, you could do whatever you wanted, really. There has to be some sort of order. And I think that's why they're doing this is just to try their best to maintain order in a time when they have lost a lot of it. So I, you know, as much as I like that idea, I just don't see it being feasible. No, that, that makes sense. Definitely what you're saying. And I think too, something else college football can look at with the scheduling is, would you be a fan of how the NFL does it to where, if you perform well in the season, you end up having to play like a quote unquote first place schedule. So in this case, we had the four playoff teams this year being Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State, and TCU. Now for the non-conference scheduling, would you be a fan of Ohio State and Michigan and Alabama, TCU, Georgia, like all those teams that have been around that playoff circle? Would you be a fan of them having to then play a Notre Dame or a Clemson out of, out of conference and those out of conference schedules then get generated in this time of year, in the January and the February, and they kind of stay open until you finish the season and see, all right, I was a really good team last year. I have to draw one or two marquee games out of conference. Or do you think it's fine how it is because of how the super conferences will be set up to where they're going to have more marquee games than ever given the structure of them? Yeah, I think uh, I really don't like that NFL system. I get why they do it, and I'm not sure there's a better alternative just based on how they build their schedules. But it really frustrates me, and this is somebody as a Bengals fan who went through it this year and will have to go through it next year also. You know, playing the Chiefs and the Bills every year sucks, right? You don't want to have to do that, and I get why they do it. It makes sense. You don't want, you know, 
they, they have the draft order set up for parity purposes. They have the scheduling set up for parity purposes and it works. You know, the NFL is a, a very parity heavy league. Um, you very rarely see a repeat Super Bowl champion. You've had the Chiefs who have kind of become the new dynasty, I guess. And even they haven't, you know, been the success of the last few years. You look at the Patriots, probably the dynasty in NFL history. They're pretty much the only one you can think of. You even look at a team like the Bills in the early 90s. They got to the Super Bowl four straight times, but they lost all four. Um, so, I, you know, all that to say, I get why the NFL does it. I don't think it needs to be done in college. I think a lot of these programs are scheduling marquee out of conference games on their own i think the 12 team playoff gives them a little more wiggle room to do so you can drop a game or two and still be in um, and i agree with you in that the, the conference realignment will allow for just better games in general you know let's say the big 10 does some sort of random system well instead of playing Rutgers every year now you might play Rutgers two out of three years or one out of three years and you play usc the other time so by default you're going to get a harder schedule if you add stronger opponents to the conference and um, so, no, I don't think that that pod scheduling or whatever the NFL calls it is necessary. Um, I will say that I'm not a huge fan of teams like Michigan scheduling UConn and Eastern Michigan and Akron every single year. Um, but the I don't think the extreme other way is better either. I wouldn't want to see Ohio State go play Clemson, Notre Dame, and even if you throw in an, a team like Arkansas State or Toledo like they played last year, I still think that would be a little too much. So. I would certainly be in favor of, of each team having one marquee out of conference game, but even that's subjective, subjective, right? I mean, look how much teams change year to year. You look at a team like TCU would have been a relatively easy game last year not so much this year. So, um, you know, it sounds good on paper, but in practice, I'm just not sure how much it would work out, but this is why we're talking about it. Right. And I'm sure that the decision makers are doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So maybe instead of doing a schedule similar to the structure of the NFL, you do one to where you just tell all the teams in the power five, you have to schedule at least one power five game in the non-conference. Now that could be as high as Alabama or it could be as low as Rutgers, but you still have to schedule one, at least power five team instead of a couple of group of five teams or just some low level opponents, just to boost your win column. And at the same time too, in the scheduling defense is most of those games are scheduled, you know, four to eight years out. Sometimes you get them occasional with 10 or whatever it is. But most of those games are scheduled far out. And you mentioned a great point with TCU is two, three years ago, TCU is one of those games that you're not nervous to go play TCU. And then if you see them coming on your schedule this year, you're like, oh, wow, they just went to the national championship game. This is a tough out of conference game now all of a sudden. So I, I think there's a balance between that, like you were saying. And I think the better route to go would be just that mandatory one, at least one power five team out of conference because of what we'll get now in conference and like we've talked about before, less games are going to matter as much as they do now, but we're going to have a lot more games that matter in the overall playoff system. And we're going to get a lot more marquee matchups and big showdowns and, you know, top five, 10, 15 matchups during the regular season, which is going to be great for the sport, great for the TV networks, great for the players to play that level of competition. So I think college football is headed in a good direction on that front with the 12 team playoff. No, I agree with you. It'll just allow for more flexibility because you're not worried about losing one game and then you're automatically out of championship contention. Um, so, yeah, no, I agree. I think I think overall it'll end up being a good thing for the upper echelon of teams. I think that some of the lower teams will have trouble. Uh, maybe a team like Oklahoma State, for example, in the Big 12 kind of caught in that limbo stage right now. Or, you know, maybe a team like Cal, who is 
probably not going to be the first candidate for for an invitation into the Big Ten or whoever's next, whatever the case may be. Uh, so those teams might might hurt a little bit, but I think for the upper echelon of teams, the teams that are already in the uh, Big Ten and SEC, really specifically, maybe throwing the ACC there too. Um, yeah, I think it'll work out better for them in the end. Yeah, I think so too. And I'm really looking forward to see the landscape of college football once we get to that 2024 place with the realignment there and the playoff expansion and how those games are going to go because it it increases your margin for error and not that you want to be this participation trophy league. But like you said, there's times where your schedule just sets up and it's absolutely brutal. You have to go three, four road games. You have to play, sometimes you have to play four or five top 10, 15, 20 teams. And you're like, man, it's just grueling. And how do you get out of that with one loss? And then you lose two or three games and you're like, all right, we messed out on the playoff structure, but then maybe a three loss LSU this year would have beaten a TCU. You just, you just don't know. And now under that 12 team playoff system, you're going to be able to play those difficult schedules. You can lose one, two, maybe three games, and then you're still in the playoff and you have a shot for a national championship to prove that you are that good. If you feel that you've been slighted, like in Alabama's case this year, they felt they should have been in the playoff. Well, under that 12-team format, they get the chance to go and prove that and say, all right, we didn't do things as well as we wanted to in the regular season, but now we get that chance in the playoff as you know the seventh seed they would have been this year, I think. And who knows, maybe they get to a quarterfinal, a semifinal, even a national championship. Yeah, I agree. I think it's great. I mean, you look, for example, at the 20... 20- 2021 22 Bengals right finished 10 and 7 regular season and making it to the Super Bowl exactly you know, I think I think those kind of things matter you look at it in pretty much every sport you see it look at a team like the Phillies who just snuck into the MLB playoffs and all of a sudden they end up in the World Series so more playoff teams people always seem to complain about it they're diluting it but it ends up turning out a better product in the end more often than not and I think that'll be the case here We'll see a lot of games that we think aren't going to be great. I mean, look at it. You know, you were going to have a, a USC Tulane matchup, right? Everyone's saying, oh, USC just going to roll Tulane. And maybe they would have in the playoff if they had matched up. But, you know, you look at Tulane, they end up winning that game there and, and surprising a lot of people. You look at TCU beating Michigan, Ohio State almost beats Georgia. And I think you would see more of that and we'll see more of that with the expanded playoff. Absolutely. And then I like what you said, too, about those, like the Bengals getting to the Super Bowl at 10 and 7. And if you ask the teams in the NFC, when do they not want to play the New York football giants? That's when they're the wild card team. You know, they yeah. won two Super Bowls as a wild card team back in the early 2000s there with Eli Manning. And, you know, it sets up. Now, it's not going to happen every single year. You know, more times than not, those wild card teams and the lower seeds in the playoff format, they're not going to get to the national championship. But you're going to have those years where we get that quote unquote Cinderella run to the semifinal or to the national championship game. It's going to add a lot more parity to the sport that's been very top-heavy. And I think as we transition into the NIL and the transfer portal part of our discussion now, that's going to have a big part in it too that levels the playing field a little bit more for the teams that are outside of that top bubble of you know that three to five teams. So just in that regular NFL structure, how would you, how would you do this? Because there haven't been any regulations at all on the NIL there. And I think for me personally, I would go with no upfront money. Like you have this Jaden Rashada thing where he's guaranteed 13 million. You just can't throw money blank checks that you actually can't cash. So I think it needs to be structured in a way where you can't guarantee these recruits money before 
they even play for you. Now you can say, all right, we're going to put you on a contract. You can have this $4 million. You've got to at least play first. You can't just sign for the money and then leave. You know, that rumor with Quinn Ewers, I'm not saying he did that, but you can't have that kind of situation where you go sign a big NIL deal. You sit for a year and then you're like, all right, I'm going to go transfer. I think that's the part of NIL that they really need to iron out. I think they should just do a salary cap and then let the teams figure it out for themselves. You know, well, that would be the most. Say, yeah, I mean, that's what I would do. I would say, hey, look, let's just throw out a number. You got $10 million. Use it however you want. You know, you could give it to if you want a five star quarterback, if you want Quinn Ewers, give Quinn Ewers nine of that 10 million, you know, and then figure out the rest. Uh, in, in my opinion, that's how I would do it. I would say, look, I don't care. You know, you can use your money how you want to use it. You can have this much allotted. And, you know, it, it would make it pretty simple. And, you know, that it, maybe it would lead to some players choosing a place that has more salary cap. You know, maybe there's a receiver, five-star receiver out there, just another random example. Tennessee's out of money. South Carolina's got $2 million left. They say, hey, we'll give you a million bucks to play for South Carolina, said Tennessee. Maybe that happens. Maybe Tennessee says, look, we got some money coming off the books next year. We're not paying you anything this year, but next year we can give you X, Y, and Z. Maybe that's how it works. I don't really care. I just think there should be a set amount that each team can spend. It levels the playing field. It gives the donors and the boosters and whoever's funding this stuff the opportunity to be prepared. And, you know, if you waste your money, just like in the NFL, you sign somebody to a bad contract, tough, you're stuck. That's just how it should go in college, too. Yeah, the salary cap example is great. And I think, too, the one kink you might have in rolling that out would be not everything's equal per school. So you'll have Alabama, Texas, Ohio State, Michigan, Georgia. Their bankroll would be similar to the New York Yankees and the L.A. Dodgers, right? Yes. And then you would have teams like Rutgers or Maryland or Iowa or, you know, whoever, Oklahoma State, TCU. Their bankroll would be like, all right, it's a little bit lower. It might be like the Miami Marlins, you know, or it might be like the Colorado Rockies. It's not on that top tier yet. So I think that would be one challenge in doing a salary cap and just saying there's a flat amount. So maybe it goes percentage based, but even still, like that would be a good way to regulate the collectives, which I think you need to rein in too, because they're writing checks that they can't cash. Yeah. I think they would probably have to find some media number between all the teams that are involved. Let's say, you know, there's 50 teams involved and the, the media and budget is, 25 million then that should be the cap should be the 25 million the median budget should be the cap and if that you know that it's just like the nfl right the dallas cowboys probably have more money to spend than the cincinnati Bengals. right not in the nfl they don't you know they might be three times as valuable but they can't spend a cent more than the Bengals are allowed to spend uh, would you i'm not to cut you off i'm sorry would you include a luxury tax kind of like baseball no i would just say you can't go over just like the nfl you can't can't go over. They, they do some funky things to get around it or whatever, and I'm sure college teams would do the same. But no, you, you can't go over. And, and the MLB, yeah, they have that luxury tax, but it hasn't really dissuaded anybody before. I mean, sometimes it does. For example, the Yankees, I know, have passed the third tier, but they won't pass the fourth tier or whatever it is. And, and Steve Cohen of the Mets has just blown right by it. Um, so, you know, if you have enough money, you're going to just take the penalty anyway, and it won't matter in the end. Um, so I think there, there has to be some sort of cap. Like I said, the median, uh, whatever it is, I don't really know how they'll figure it out. I'm confident that they will, uh, but it certainly can't keep rolling like it's rolling right now, giving you know a, a kid who, who's never played a down, who hasn't even signed with the school yet, millions of dollars. It's just, 
not something that can continue for an extended period of time. It's not sustainable. Yeah, when you're building an organization or you're doing a new product, or you're optimizing something, you want to look at sustainability. That's one of the main factors. And like you're saying, this is just not a sustainable path for college football to continue on the way everything's completely, it's like the Wild West. Everything's unregulated. There's no cap on anything. There's no, there really aren't any rules about it of what you can and cannot do. You know, everything's kind of free game. So it presents a lot of challenges. And then too, with the transfer portal window, now we have the season end, you know, that last week of November, first week of December, and all of a sudden you've got championship week, you've got bowl prep, and then packed in there, you've got an early signing period now and the transfer portal window opens up on top of Black Monday where the coaches get fired. So like, that's way too much going on in one week. I think college football needs to restructure their calendar a little bit more too, because it's just not optimal for those teams. Like in Ohio State's case, right? They win the Big Ten four straight years. They're they have bowl prep that week. Okay, now the last two years, Ryan Day's been able to recruit in that week. Now, of course, he wants to be in Indianapolis playing for a Big Ten championship, but in that week that he's recruiting the last two years, maybe that's the difference in him landing a recruit. And it's a disadvantage that Michigan and Jim Harbaugh had or Kirby Smart in Georgia because they're preparing for a Big Ten or an SEC championship game. And now they're not afforded that ability to be out on the recruiting trail with that extra week, getting that kid, whereas Nick Saban and Ryan Day were out on the trail this year, not playing in those games. Yeah, well, and you look at the college football playoff too, right? Those four teams that are in the playoff this year, um, you know, that's three weeks of prep right there, three or four weeks of prep. And that's when the transfer portal is hot and heavy. Of course, a lot of teams have finished their bowl games and regular seasons by the time that the college football playoff kicks off. And you get a team like Ole Miss or A&M or Alabama or – Minnesota or who Penn State, whoever's not in the playoff has three weeks of lead time. Um, and you're right. I think the calendar is too condensed. I agree with you that the portal window and national signing day probably shouldn't happen until after the college football playoff. Um, whether they move the playoff up or, you know, I don't know how they're going to do it now with the 12 teams, how they're going to do the calendar, but um, they're going to have to change something. And I agree with you. I think that I, I really liked the the February signing day. I, I was never really sure why they changed it to the early signing period. Um, it didn't really make a lot of sense. I get it in terms of early enrollees and whatnot, but that was never really a thing before. You could always enroll early before um, they created the early signing period. So um, maybe they'll, they'll go back to just having that February day unless you're an early enrollee. And um, yeah, a lot of decisions to be made and, and it's fun playing commissioner here, but I'm not sure I'd like to do it full time because this is these are some big decisions that these guys are going to have to make here in the near future. Yeah, and that February signing day, that was something you looked forward to when the season ended. You know, there wasn't this hard cutoff of, oh, my gosh, you wake up the next day. There's no college football for seven months. You know, you don't even think about it. You're like spring ball. And, you know, that's a feather in the cap, a spring game. You know, OK, great. But there wasn't really anything that excited you for seven months. And when you had that signing day in February, that was something you looked forward to after that. And then you go from the national championship game and the bowls all the way to signing day. Then you go into spring ball, you get the spring game. Then you're at summer. So you got vacations and whatever, and you kind of forget about missing college football a little bit. Then you've got camp and you're right back into the season there. And I know it's a little more flow than that, but it just made college football go a little bit more year round rather than just condensing everything. And part of the reason too might be this semester schedule that colleges operate on and where you know, that's the semester ends right before Christmas and the new one begins in the first week of January around the national championship. So that's a hurdle. So I think college football just has so many different hurdles because of 
They have that education base because these are student athletes, not athlete students. They have to abide by that education standard there. So, and even still too, when we talked about the recruiting with, you said the three week lead time there for playoff teams that are not afforded, there's a lot less recruiting that those teams had to do. Like if you're Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, there's a lot less recruiting you have to do against a Penn State or against a South Carolina or a Tennessee or, you know, any of the teams that aren't quite on your standards. So you don't have to say as much and it's not as bad. But now in this NIL era, you know, Tennessee comes in, hey, you're going to offer you $3 million. And all right, Nick Saban's out, you know, preparing for the college football playoff semifinal. And that $3 million sways him over. And what can Saban do about it? So NIL has leveled that playing field more, which has presented more problems on a condensed schedule. That's already difficult and challenging for coaches who don't get any sleep as it is. Yeah, absolutely. And the 12 team playoffs is going to complicate it even further in theory, just because there's going to be more games. You know, you're, you're not going to have three weeks to prepare for the college football playoff. You might have to play three games in three weeks in the college football playoffs. So um, definitely some changes that will be made. And I guess the biggest question is going to be how many, when are they coming and what are they? Yeah, and I think what you do with the transfer portal is you don't let that window open until after the season ends, so after the national championship. And then also, I think you should have one immediate transfer per player, not this, hey, I'm going to go to Ohio State, then I'm going to go to Michigan, then I'm going to go to Texas. And all right, let me finish out my career in Tuscaloosa. You know, it's not really great. You can't have those guys bounce around because how do you actually build a roster when you have that fear of, all right, am I going to lose this player? Am I going to do this? Now, yes, you want to build that team atmosphere and build that culture to where guys don't want to leave. But unfortunately, if David, you offer me $2 million to come play for you and I'm only getting paid 750,000 at my school, I might come play for you depending on who I am. And that's just the nature of what, you know, college football is becoming right now with this pay for play type of deal. So that's another problem that has to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, um, you think about paying players like that and whether the one-time transfer is good or not. I like the one-time transfer, but you're right. When it gets, you know, you, you see guys going to four schools in five years, four schools in six years, and it's a little too much. I'm, I'm a, I was a big fan of the free graduate transfer rule. I think that once you have graduated from your institution, you have accomplished what you need to accomplish there and you should be free to go elsewhere. I, I agree. get that. I like that. Um, now, then it creates a thing, well, can you transfer once an undergrad and then transfer again as a grad transfer? I, you know, I think that's how they have it set up now. Um, and it's just, it's getting too complicated. It's getting to the point where, you know, like you said, we don't know who's going to be on the roster every year. You could sign a kid, you know, the, some of these kids who just signed in the 2023 class won't be on their teams in 2024. Um, and it's probably a pretty significant number of them. And so when you look at it that way, it's like, well, okay, how do we handle this? You know, you want the kids to feel welcome and comfortable. You want them to kind of receive what they're giving, right? You don't want them to, to work for free or however they, you know, want to want to describe it. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you need some sort of roster continuity. You need some sort of outlook to say, hey, look, we've got this guy coming in next year. We've got this guy coming back. This guy's probably going to leave. You know, you got to just be aware of these things instead of being blindsided by look, Oh, wow. You know, we have three DBs transfer out and, you know, now we're Ohio state and we're in the playoff. It's too late. We can't go get any transfers because we're in the playoff or whatever the case may be. So I'm sure it's frustrating. These coaches, like you said, they already don't get enough sleep. And so something's going to have to change in terms of regulations. Yeah. And as you're listening to the show, 
you're either one, have a headache from how insane this actually is when you talk about it. Number two, you're like, oh yeah, that's a good point. Like I agree with that and we need to change. So how do we go about fixing this? Would you hire one sole commissioner and have it like the NFL where you have a Roger Goodell over top of it? Or do you take the approach of creating a governing body similar to how the college football playoff committee is where you just mix in chancellors, presidents, ADs, and those and higher level positions like that and create this governing body? Do you formulate one that has um, all the commissioners of the power five conferences and do something like that? What would be your roadmap to fix the governance of college football itself? Well, I'll say this. I don't really know what the answer is. I, I like what the college football playoff committee has done since they've been established. I think for the most part, and, and I would hope that you'll agree with this. I think they've gotten it right more often than not. I agree. Um, I think that the four teams they select are probably the four most deserving teams pretty much every year. I'm sure there's been one or two that, you know, they haven't got right, but for the most part, I think they've been pretty good. And I think that should be how it works similarly here um, with these types of decisions, because you'll get input from various conferences. You'll get input from various people at different positions. You know, you might get an AD, maybe you'll get a university president. Maybe you'll get some football administrator. I don't know how it'll work. Maybe you'll, you'll even get some people who, um, aren't even involved maybe you'll get like a retired coach for example uh, yeah throw barry Alvarez on there yeah but barry, you know barry i was a little different because he's in an administrative position but um you know somebody who is like steve spurrier for example he's been around the there game i'm just throwing him out as an example been around the game a long time uh, a coach like that not necessarily you know in an administrative position but who knows the game who's been around in it uh for a long time and, and maybe you throw somebody like that on there um, so I think you can kind of mix and match and, and and build something similar to the college football playoff committee, which has been right more often than not in recent years. And I think I would prefer that over, um, you know, one Roger Goodell type commissioner, because we saw like in the Big Ten in 2020, Kevin Warren kind of botched that COVID situation. And that was, you know, a one man show. And you would have liked to see some checks and balances there. So uh, I think that's what I would prefer personally. Yeah, checks and balances is 100 percent the way to go. And I think forming that governing body with that mix of like you said, the presidents, chancellors, athletic directors, former coaches, maybe you get a former player on there who's involved or coaching or something of that nature, you know, to have that balance of perspectives and so that you can actually lead college football to a place where you have hope for the future. Because if you have hope for college football right now, you know, it's definitely has chaos written all over it at the moment, the way it's headed with all the unregulation on everything. And this expanded playoff is just, there's so many issues to address and you don't want it to get to a point where the power five just breaks off. And now you have two leagues and neither of them are run. Well, you have to have it set up to where let's say the power five does break off. All right. Well, there's a structure here and there's a structure for those group of five teams, just like, and then you have your one double a ball as well. Like that's the pathway forward for college football. It's getting that governing body, having that mix of opinions and all for that common goal of making college football great and the best possible sport that it can be instead of just having one singular person in charge. Because like you said, sometimes that can result in a power trip and other times it results in just not having all the right perspectives around you. You know, we all perceive the world in our own way and you know, we all have weak spots and we all have strengths and the two of us, like, let's take us. I'll have one perspective. You might have a different perspective and together we have the full perspective, but just in my own self and my own opinion, I perceive my world through affinity bias or to whatever it is. And I don't see that full picture. When you have those committees in that structure, that's when you're able to 
see that full perspective and get what you need out of the deal. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, they've been doing this leadership this way for thousands of years, right? I mean, you look at how the United States government is set up and it's set up with checks and balances. And, you know, I'm not comparing college football to um, the three branches of the United States government, but it just shows that checks and balances has been the way that it's been run for hundreds, thousands of years in various parts of, across the world. And, uh, I, you know, we've seen in college football with the committee now, and, uh, and there's no reason why that should change. So we'll see how they do it. But yeah, we've gone through a lot here in this episode. And, you know, like I said earlier, it really makes me, uh, I'm certainly not jealous of the people who are going to have to make these decisions because this is going to be really challenging. Yeah, I, I don't envy it at all. However, college football decides to handle this. And like you said, as a leader, you don't want to surround yourself with people who think just like you, just like you, you want to surround yourself with people who think differently. That way you can get that full perspective on the situation and have those checks and balances in place to get the optimal results. But yeah, so much to digest from this episode. I'm going to go back and listen to it myself. I encourage you guys to do the same. It's been a lot of fun playing commissioner. David, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts here on your commissioner for the day. No, no. Like I said, just glad I'm commissioner for the day and not commissioner for several years. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the Big Ten still has a position open. We'll see who they fill it with. That's a humongous, humongous uh, position to fill there. And, uh, you know, looking forward to see what happens here. Navigating the offseason pretty well so far. You know, coming up on spring ball, we're uh, under a month now. Yeah, we get spring ball, get the NFL draft. Um, so, yeah, transfer portal will reopen after spring practice. So no shortage of news coming. Nope, not at all. Yeah, continue to stay tuned with us on the show. We'll keep everything to you as soon as we get it. And as always, thank you for listening to the Saturday Cadence Podcast.